She's totally uh, overtaking me there. So, uh, yeah, and they're great boots as well. Um, so here we are. We're back together again, and uh, King's Church family. We're going to continue with our core values series. And uh, so far, you may have noticed we've looked at three doctrinal values: word-based, grace-filled, spirit-empowered. And they reflect who we are. We are a word and spirit people saved by grace through faith alone. Hallelujah. That's a great thing. And uh, the next three weeks, as we do the next three values, and then there'll be three more after that, these next three are all on the theme of leadership. And we'll be talking about elder-led churches today and translocal ministries in the next week and then servant-hearted leadership, sorry, servant-hearted leadership the week after, the week after. Uh, but before we get into that, before we get into today's message as well, I just want to pray uh, and invite the Holy Spirit to come again and fill us afresh. So, Father God, we do. We've declared your greatness right now. We just thank you again. We praise you for those wonderful stories of your provision. We thank you for the wonderful testimony about having a relationship with you, God, and how important that is and how significant it is we unite under you, our our Lord and our Good Shepherd. And we thank you again that you're the healer, you're the restorer, and you are the one to be glorified. So I invite you to come by your Holy Spirit to fill our hearts afresh right now, to touch us, to fill us and speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to go into elder-led churches, and we believe in having elders in each local church. And so firstly, I just want to start off by talking about who we believe elders are what they are like and and what they're called to do. And then later on, lastly, we're going to look at the scriptural foundation for why we believe in having male elders. And it's worth noting that though we're focusing on elders this morning, they're not the only people in the church who have these characteristics and the capabilities described by the Apostle Paul. They are, however, those called to a particular role of elder, for which they will be held to account by God and judged more severely. We believe the New Testament texts written to the churches by the Apostle Paul are a blueprint for us. They kind of shape how church structure and organization are meant to be done, and we believe that is the case for all churches for all time. And so we look to them and we interpret them very carefully. We get into the the detail. We want to be specific. We want to be sure and bring that through. And so to the first question, elders, who are they and what are they like? The New Testament shows that elders, sometimes called presbyters, sometimes called bishops, um, without the hats uh, in our case, were appointed in the local churches from soon after Pentecost took place. And there are some places in the New Testament where you'll find the lists of qualifications. Uh, They are Titus, 1 Peter, and the one I'm going to use today is in 1 Timothy, verses 1 to, sorry, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. And this is Paul the Apostle writing to the church in Ephesus. He's writing to Timothy. And Paul is old at this stage, writing to a young man, Timothy. And uh, Timothy's gone there to sort the church out and help out. And so we're going to read this text uh, together. Uh, You can follow it along on the screen or in your Bible. Paul says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? 
He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So it's safe to say that Paul instructs that churches are to appoint elders who are of good character, those that are reliable, that are faithful, and and largely look a lot like Jesus. Um, And I'm not going to go through the whole list of characteristics. Many of those ones in that list, you'll notice, are exactly what they say on the tin. They're easy to understand. But there's just a, a couple of terms in there that I thought it might help just to have a little bit more explanation. And the first one of those that we're just going to dig into a bit, is the husband of one wife. And it's, it's not a character thing, it's a circumstance thing. And it does highlight, however, a character trait, the trait of faithfulness among others. And Paul determines that elders are to be these upright and faithful men inside and outside of marriage. And if you dig into the New Testament a bit more, you can uh, discover that actually it's uh, the case that Paul... Uh, also supports this view that men uh, that aren't married or men that don't have children but are married can also step into that role as well. And this, and it's, but it's really a, a him pointing to the fact that these men need to be faithful. They need to be of good character and be truly committed in a deep relationship such as marriage where you have no place to hide. I can testify to this. Sophie can see me first thing in the morning and she can see me last thing at night and everywhere in between when I'm getting frustrated, when I'm Cross. And so, really, again, it's a, it's a good opportunity there to be tested. And uh, also, then, if you do have children, you, you'll know this, then you, that you are tested in many, many areas as well. Um, but it's reassuring to know, you know, Paul points to this and says, look, these guys need to be the husband of one wife. And it's a helpful indicator for that. And there's a lot more we could dig into there. But I just wanted to highlight that one. The second one is able to teach. This qualification appears to be based on gifting rather than character. Um, But it doesn't mean that elders have to have a degree or a diploma or a teaching qualification. But it does mean that they need to be effective in communicating the truth of God to others. For some of them, it might be their main gift. For others, it might be part of a gift mix. But either way, Paul determines that elders are to be able to teach those that follow them. They need to be able to talk the talk as well as walk the walk. That's able to teach. The last one is he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And so here Paul likens an elder's own household to God's church, and elders care deeply. They care deeply for their own household, taking responsibility for it, bringing protection and discipline for it, and for those within it, just as they are to do for the church. And uh, it's reassuring when C.H. Spurgeon uh, uh, kind of comments on something, and he sort of surmised this point uh, when he said this, if a preacher's household is not in order, he should, not, he should travel at least five miles before he preaches, and when he gets there, he should say nothing. <laughs> so <laughs> clearly there's this strong link between household and church there, and an elder's ability to manage it. They have to be able to do so with all dignity. And this little phrase kind of jumped out to me as well, because I don't know whether I, some of the time I think to myself, gosh, was that dignified or not uh, when I'm <laughs> home? But yeah, it's, it's with all dignity. It's, it's this phrase that, that says, come on, they, can, they need to be able to do this before they get into leading God's church. They need to have this in them. 
And it doesn't mean that they don't get anything wrong. The elders are still human. It's not that they never make mistakes, um, but ultimately they're founded on good character. They're founded on good character, and they're not alone. They're part of a team. This is where we get to the plurality of elders. We believe in this. We believe in having a plurality of elders, a team with a leader. And throughout the New Testament, there are many references to elders leading alongside one another, and there are many good reasons for doing so. In his book, Elders, P.J. Smythe wrote this. He said, eldership teams minimize the weaknesses and amplify the strengths of the individual members. Few burdens seem heavy when everyone lifts. And just like in a team sport, like football, a striker or a goalkeeper alone can't win the game. They can't do it on their own, whether it's Lucy Bronze or Harry Kane, they can't win the game without the other team. They need someone to pass them the ball uh, in the first place. And an eldership team is similar in this sort of regard. The team takes collective responsibility. They lift together and they have different gift mixes. You might have noticed uh, our eldership team is very mixed in its ways and gifts. And another mixture of things that we have in the team here in particular is staff and non-staff elders. And I wanted to highlight that because uh, it doesn't make anyone more important than anyone else in the team. Our employment status doesn't determine level of influence, etc. All on the team are equal and all on the team acknowledge that we have a leader in Dale. And being a team not only helps us build strong relationships and work together and be accountable to one another, but it also protects us from authoritarianism, which is where one person takes over and takes the agenda and makes everyone follow what they're doing and kind of uh, dominates in a really unhelpful and sometimes destructive way. And so this team approach is a healthy precedent, not just for the team there of elders, but for other teams being built in the church as well. And so we see this team effort going on, but Who calls this team to assemble? Who calls everyone together? Where does the authority for eldership come from? Well, the short answer is God. Leaders only become elders because God anoints them for the task, as alluded to in Romans 13. The authority is typically recognized after being given, in a sense, by three parties. And you will have noticed this uh, lately when I I joined the team. Um, The people that noticed... uh, eldership character and gifting upon me were the apostolic team. You might have seen Jim online if you were watching that week, Jim Partridge, uh, the local elders here, the other elders that were already in the team, and you guys, the congregation all gave me a thumbs up, which was a a real encouragement to me, and uh, I really appreciate that as well. So that's kind of how they come about. It's how they come to being part of that team. And so that's really the answer to question one. Elders are those who are of good character, primarily called by God to be part of a team and ultimately given the authority and grace by God to do the task. Which brings us to the task of being an elder. Question number two, what are elders called to do? Well, perhaps one of the richest images we have of uh, elders is that of a shepherd. It's one of the most helpful I've found. And if you know anything about shepherding, you know that in the first century in particular, it was a lowly and hard task. It's why it's so amazing in the nativity story that they were the ones that were told about the birth of Jesus and sent to find him. And it's still a lowly and difficult task. If anyone has watched Our Yorkshire Farm on Channel 5, no, not many faces. Someone has. Artie has. Good. Uh, (laughs) Ask Artie about it. Uh, You'll have seen this farming program. It's hard work. They have to work really hard. And yet, even though it's lowly and it's hard, 
In the Bible, shepherding is a truly honorable endeavor. It's referenced in John 10 and Psalm 23 by Jesus. And he talks about himself. He talks about being the good shepherd. And the good shepherd provides and cares for the flock and defends the flock. And so quite rightly, when elders think about their task and consider the nobility of that task for God's flock, God's people whom they serve, well, it does raise the nobility of that task. Because you think about who God's people have been called in the Bible. They've been called a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people of God's own possession. And that is you. That is amazing and wonderful. And it just makes the task even more um, kind of significant in that sense of responsibility and doing it well. And so just like shepherds, there are a variety of things that elders are commissioned to do in order to protect the flock, keep them healthy, well-fed, and well-watered. And so I've got three Ds for you today. Today's holistic eldership roles are brought to you by the letter D. And I should have said to you at the start, really, that there is so much in these uh, values, and particularly this one, uh, to say that I'm actually not going to be able to say everything. And so if there is a gap or something I haven't said, uh, I do apologize for that. But at the same time, we've, we've only got a limited time. So we've just got three Ds, not 18 uh, today. So you'll be relieved about that, at least. The first one of these Ds is, is doctrine. It's, it's all about a set of foundational beliefs. And we're doing that with this series. We're actually saying, this is who we are. This is what we're about. This is what we are founded upon. And we don't talk about it all the time, but you'll notice probably a lot of these values as we go through the weeks are weaved into our uh, weekly sermons, and uh, you'll be picking up the various themes. But for anyone who doesn't know, a doctrine is, is simply a set of beliefs, and there's all sorts of doctrines out there, doctrine of scripture, of spirit, of grace, of heaven, of hell. There's so many. And, uh, and teaching God's word uh, on these things on a regular basis is just fundamental to keeping us healthy and stable as a flock, and it mimics the work of Jesus. When Jesus encountered multitudes of people who started to follow him, he calls them, some, on one occasion he says, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so what did he do? He taught them. When crowds swelled again because he did some more miracles, he would stop, refocus, teach, and preach. And then towards the end of Jesus' ministry, he's speaking to Peter, who will become an apostle, and he says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep by teaching them. And then he sends out his disciples into the world saying, go into all the nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And so teaching, doctrine, teaching is essential and it's central uh, for a foundation for a church to, to build from, to send out more disciples from. And so that's the one thing, that's one thing that elders do is set doctrine for the church. They set the boundaries, they set the foundation of uh, what we do and who we are. The second one is discipline. And again, we return to the shepherd for this one because there's a number of areas where elders have to guard and or discipline the church. And it's, it's probably best just to distinguish between the two under this heading of discipline. And so we'll start with guard. They guard the church from uh, wolves and thieves, as mentioned by Paul in Acts 20. He says this is what the part of the role is, to protect the church, is to guard the church from people who might want to come among them and stir up division. And if you read the New Testament, you will have noticed this happens from time to time. People were trying to come among the flock, trying to disrupt, trying to cause problem, 
promoting false doctrine and maybe even leading certain individuals off down certain paths. You can see some of that uh, in the New Testament as well. And it is an elder's responsibility to fend off people who might want to do that. And again, we return to um, Psalm 23 on this occasion because you'll know that there's a reference in there to a rod and a staff, and they kind of help us here. The rod of the shepherd is short, it's straight, it's comparatively heavy compared to the staff, and it's used for defending against predators in the shepherding world. And elders are the ones that do that. They held this rod and they guard the gate to the church. And on a practical level, this is what we do. We, we meet people who want to come and join us, newcomers. We get to know them. We hear their story, build a relationship before we kind of open the gate and say, great, come and join a life group or be part of us, providing everything's all right. And if a uh, threat is detected, then we ward them off. We use the rod to say, no, no, you get back. You don't come. You're not coming in among us. Thank you very much. And so we use the, the rod in, one, in that way. That's just one example. But also shepherds have a staff, and it's in the other hand in a sense. I'm doing the two-hand thing. People online or listening to this later won't know what I'm doing, but I'm kind of doing that to show you which hand I've got each one in. But they have this, this staff. The shepherd has a staff, and the staff is lighter. It's longer. It's, it's got a hook or a crook on the end, and it's for gently but firmly prodding sheep back into position or hooking them away from harm if they're about to fall into a, a river or something like that. And again, the elders are charged with this role of bringing correction to the church. It might be to an individual. It might be to the wider congregation. Uh, and again, they're, they're warding off. They're defending against things like heresy, disunity, false teaching, unrepentant, sinful behavior. All of those things and more are things that elders have to deal with. And they're not always easy and light conversations. Some of them are just really heavy and hard work. And elders have this this responsibility to grasp the nettle, which is a phrase I learned uh, from a good friend. Grasping this nettle in situations where you know you've got to do it, but it and it's going to sting. And it, there's something about it, you're thinking, oh, I don't really want to do that, but I'm going to do it because I know I need to, because I know it's my responsibility, because I know it's going to be for the good of those involved. And it's hard, and it can be painful, but it's what elders are called to do. Jesus, again, he modeled this. He was good at this. Uh, he, he was able to correct his disciples, the ones that were already following him. But he was also able to fend off his opponents. Yes, uh, you might have read that in the Gospels as well. And he was very effective at it. He was very good at it. So we're modeling ourselves really on his balance and his toughness and tenderness at the same time as the good shepherd. So that's the next D, discipline. And uh, now for the last one, which is direction. Um, Thirdly, elders direct the affairs of the church, and they lead by setting that direction as a whole as well. They're the ones who answer the question, where are we going? What are we aiming for in terms of vision? And they expect those who follow them to trust them. They gather the church uh, so that they can proceed and communicate things clearly so that they can move forwards. Again, if you know anything about first century shepherding, they used to talk to their sheep or sing to them, and the sheep would know their voice and follow them across the hillside. And once again, we come back to Jesus, the good shepherd. He's the one in his ministry who set the pace and he set the direction and he led his disciples through. And he didn't give them all the answers straight away. He, he knew where they're going, but he didn't always tell them and uh, ask them to trust him. Like when Lazarus was ill and was about to die, he didn't go straight away. Like people naturally thought, oh, you need to go straight away and stop him and help him and heal him. Instead, Jesus waited. And it's just one of those examples where he's leading them lovingly and setting that direction 
and paints. And so there we go, three Ds, not 18 Ds, doctrine, discipline, and direction. And again, it's not an exhaustive list, but it is an overview of what elders do. And so now we turn to our final question, why do we believe in having male elders um, here at King's Church? And, um, and just before I get into that, I want to flag the fact that we know this belief is considered to be controversial by some, and we also know that it's evocative, we know that uh, it can be difficult, and so we I want, to be, I want to be sensitive in my explanation of it. And I also want to emphasize at the same time that we also believe this is an entirely biblical position and it's valuable and it promotes the flourishing of the local church. We know that historically this, this view actually uh, set out by our church family, New Frontiers, um, provoked debate in the past and caused some challenges as well. And it is a value that cuts across our culture. I'm very aware of that right now, and I'm also very aware that I'm also a man, I'm also an elder delivering it, so I'm, I'm very aware of these things, and I'm very aware as well that it will make us seem strange to our culture, and, and this is something I'm wrestling with as I'm raising our kids with Sophie, is, is the fact that I'm going to have to teach them that we are going to believe and do things as a result that are different to the people around us. We're going to be aliens in this world, and it, it kind of, like, part of me just tenses up when I think about that, but another part of me embraces it because it's faith. It's faith in Jesus. It's faith in what, we, what Archie was saying about that relationship and holding up God as number one above all that can carry us forward. And so with that, so we know this value will not be accepted by everyone in, in Christ, and we know not all will agree and have a different biblical stance and just want to be sensitive about that. And a good friend of mine uses this phrase, uh, unity is not conformity, and ultimately we do unite under Jesus but ultimately, we're not automatons. We don't all we act like robots and are all exactly the same in everything. And I just want to appreciate that. But with all that said, we're going to just look at the foundations here for having exclusively male elders. And firstly, it's important to note this, that eldership is part of the church family where, where all other roles can be fulfilled by both women and men. And it's not that elders or all men are better or more important than women, not at all. The Bible teaches us that men and women are equal. But in the Bible, we also see these examples of relationships where both parties are equal, but they have different roles. One is given that role of leading and responsibility, and the other one's given the role of submission uh, to that authority. Well, and, uh, and we're just going to explain this further. We're going to dig into this a little bit further by briefly looking at three pictures which I think are helpful, and they illustrate headship and submission in the Bible. And then we'll get to seeing how that influences our view of church family. And so here's the first one, the Trinity. Now, it's difficult to understand the Trinity at the best of times. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three but one persons. Ah, how do you kind of do that? Uh, but we're just going to step aside from that one. We're going to go to a theologian who actually explains something really helpful for us about them. Michael Ovi, a theologian, wrote in a paper called Equality, Not Symmetry. And he describes uh, the Trinity being equal but having different roles. And uh, he's writing about Jesus in this little quote I've got, and he calls him the Word, and he's also talking about the Father. Uh, but he, obviously the Holy Spirit has included this as well. He says, the Word always has been and is equally divine. This means there can be a permanent relationship between beings who have equal value but asymmetrical roles. For the Son obeys the Father's will, and the Father glorifies the Son. There is equality, but not symmetry. 
And so to carry that into this context, in our beliefs about male and female, which incidentally deserves its own teaching series, really, we ascribe to the view that humans made in the image of God are of equal worth and value. And in the original design, the original created order have different roles. And something that prompts us to look back to this design in Genesis is the way that Jesus often pointed his listeners back to Genesis when teaching on this particular subject of male and female. And we, we believe that Genesis is a good starting place to understand that humans made in this image of God can reflect the harmony of headship and submission being equal but different. And so that's the first picture. The Trinity do this. And we, we now go back to Genesis to look at how humans did this in Genesis. Adam's created first. He, he names stuff. He's told not to eat from that tree of good and evil. However, Adam is alone. And God says that loneliness is not good. And how well we know this after mid-pandemic. Loneliness is not good. And so he creates Eve as a helper, a companion. And again, to be clear, he, this role of helper, it's it doesn't mean that Eve is any less than Adam in any way. The same name is given to God the Holy Spirit in John 14, 26. But when we look at this first marriage that shows men and women being designed to have different roles in this relationship of equals, the husband leads and protects the wife and fulfillment of God's plan for creation, and the wife helps and supports the husband. And it's really clear that they need each other in this. Adam and he formed this first marriage. They formed this first family unit, which leads us to the final picture. We've got Trinity, marriage, and now we've got God and his people, Christ and the church. And so throughout Scripture, marriage is used as this picture of God's relationship with his people in the Old Testament and Christ and the church in the New Testament. And so we believe that this does not mean that God is simply using a human analogy of marriage to try and explain his relationship with us, but rather we believe that this human institution is there because it reflects the heart and mind of God. We see marriage as a picture of God's relationship with his people and Christ with the church, and therefore we hold that the biblical teaching on these two family areas of life, marriage and church, are intended to reflect this relationship. Thus, this picture of Christ in the church is reflected in male and female relationships, we believe, in both marriage and church. That's kind of how we get there. And it kind of links us back to that passage I read earlier, 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, where we're talking about church and household and the roles within those two places. But these uh, pictures of headship and submission, they actually correspond to what we believe about biblical family and being family together. We're about family and not business. This is kind of my last heading. So when Paul describes the role of elders, he doesn't have a corporate contemporary model in his mind like we might do these days. In a modern business, it makes sense for the role of CEO to be given to the most competent person irrespective of their sex. But in the Bible, as we've seen, the church isn't, continued to, isn't considered to be businesslike, but family, which is overseen and protected by fathers and these fathers are expected to have certain gifts. We've seen that already. And the primary qualification is godly character as fathers, spiritual and often biological. And throughout that letter, 1 Timothy, if you, if you read it, you'll notice that Paul constantly uh, reflects biological family, church family, church family, biological family. And he kind of makes this letter follow that theme. 
And in that family, in that context, we, we see the fact that elders must be able to father the church, and fathers are male. We believe only males can be fathers and elders of a local church, but it doesn't mean that females can't be mothers of the church, can't hold leadership roles, can't do all other things in that respect. And so we are aiming to be a biblical family. We are aiming to honor one another. We are aiming to one another one another. And uh, so all may flourish. So all may fulfill God's purpose and mission. And we're going to need to keep working hard at this. I think that's worth saying as well, because it's for God's glory. And we believe it's for our good. And to end, I just want to summarize um, this, uh, this sort of thing with this heart, if you like, my heart, certainly, from Andrew Wilson. He, he wrote this. He said, the church is a family, and it will only flourish to the extent that we value, honor, and esteem women and men, mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers. And it's a challenge, but it's also an invitation to love one another and be family together. And I've enjoyed these weeks actually coming back because that little coffee time, if you've been a meeting maker, where we all come together, we have a croissant, we have a coffee, we, we talk different generation to different generation. Even in our testimonies today, we had different generations from different generation. We had this going on, this integration, this family atmosphere. And there's, like I say, there's more work to do. There's more things we can do to reflect that and, and emphasize that.